the passage from uh, today is, comes from Matthew 5.13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. As you've already heard, we are in a series called Beacon of Life. Um, if you're new to our church, this is actually what, what some people call soft launch period, where um, we are in preparations actually to become a, a new witness and a new church plant in our city, and to then to present ourselves to be the kind of church that we believe that God is calling us to be for Silicon Valley. And so... Um, every week, for, at least for these few weeks, we're going, we've been really looking at this passage. What does it mean to be salt and light? And I said this a, a while back. Um, light is obviously something, if you have no, if you're in a dark place, that's Jesus' commentary on, on what life is like apart from God. It's dark. And people need light. And what does this mean that uh, we are to be salt? And back then, there was a time there's no refrigeration. There's no preservatives. Salt is the difference of, between life and death. That if you don't have salt, food will rot. And you won't make it through winter. And winter is cold and it is dark. And people will die. And what Jesus is saying is, if you as a people will not be salt, then the people around you will die. The people around you won't make it through the darkness and they will not make it through the winter. And so if you as a people will not be the kind of people that I call you to be, then you're not really not worth much except to be thrown out and trampled. That's actually, it's, it's a tough word. <laughs> and so what does it mean that we will be a ch the kind of church that is really salty for our city and really a place of life? You know, a lot of people today think that Christianity is primarily a bunch of do-gooders that get together and practice their religion. It's a kind of exclusive club that only they get. But what does the church do? What can the church be? And not the church as a, as a, a religious organization that gathers together, but a people. Because the church doesn't just gather inside of a building or on Sunday morning. We're, we're spread all throughout the city. And what will that people be like? That's what this, uh, that's what this series is about. Now, as a part of what I've been, I've been doing is, I believe that that passage, verses 13 to 16, which we read, that, how will we be this way? And a couple weeks ago, I think that Jesus has this very famous passage called, that's been called the Beatitudes, the blessed R's. And they're very strange. He's turning the world upside down. And all the people that are blessed are, well, they're not the kind of people that we typically want to be. Blessed are you if you are poor in spirit. But he's saying, that's the kind of people that I want you to be. Huh. I think that's how the church will be salty. It's strange when you're first poor in spirit. And last week we talked about, blessed are you who mourn. And our brother referenced, it should be a place you could go to church and be a people because life has tears. Huh. 
and you could cry at church. And you know what? It should be a completely free and safe place to cry. In fact, at church, nobody think, should think it's weird that you cry at church. And we will cry with you. That's what we talked about last week. Now, I'm not going to be able to hit every single of the Beatitudes, you know, just for, as we, just for the sake of the time of our series. But today, I want us to see what does it mean to look at salt, to be salty, to be, to be life in a place of death, um, by looking at verse 6. So this is a, another way, I think we are, it's a very, very important way. And we, as revived church, that will we be this kind of people? So here's what he says in verse 6. Chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And that's a, this is another really important mark of what revived church. Will we be righteousness and justice seekers? Will we be righteousness hungers? It's very, very important that people understand that, when that, that those people who gather there, they, they call themselves revived. They will be a righteousness hungering people. They will be a justice seeking people. And that's what I want to talk about um, as a piece of what revived should be. So part one. Rampant injustice within relativism. This is a really important piece of darkness. We live in a relativistic culture. And what that means is there's no clear standards of what it means to be righteous or just. There's lots of discussion about justice in our society. But how and what is the standard of justice? It's like, uh, it's like there's all these assumptions about it. But really... Inside of a society that has a lot of, that's filled with relativism, actually there's rampant injustice. I want to talk about that, right? Part one, rampant injustice within relativism. Part two, the problems of righteousness within religion and the law. So that's the second portion. A lot of people are going to hear, oh, we're relative, I'm a relativist. Oh, I'm a relativist and I'm a secular. So all you religious people think, you have it right because you're just telling us we just need to get religion. No, that's not what I'm going to preach. <laughs> According to the Bible, that righteousness within religion and the law is actually very, very seriously problematic. And that's what I want to talk about in part two. Right? And then in part three, I want to close by talking about why the gospel is so important. And I want to call part three the atonement as the entryway for true righteousness and justice from God. Right? The atonement as the entryway for true righteousness and justice, not from people, not from us, but from God. And this is why, this is such a supremely important reason why not just Christians need the church, our neighbors need the church, the non-Christians need the church. Because apart from the church, how can there be real righteousness and justice from God? So let me start. Um, let's get into this, uh, this verse. It says here, this is the way Jesus puts it. It's, it's very interesting phraseology. I've been meditating on this for several weeks. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's the way he puts it. Now, I want to just ask this question first. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you? Um, I, if I'm really honest... I think I might hunger and thirst for righteousness about, you know, maybe one day a week <laughs> for about two hours or about three hours. But most of the rest of the week, 
I hunger and thirst for financial security, for comfort, for entertainment, for ease of life, uh, for someone to tell me I'm good at what I do and they give me respect. I mean, aren't these the things that we mostly hunger for in Silicon Valley? For status, for respect, for financial security, for entertainment, for ease of... These are the things we kind of like in our city. This is the stuff that we hunger for. Now, we say with our lips, I want this, but that's not what we really hunger for, right? The things you're really hungry for are the things that, you know, you go out... I mean, in the middle of the afternoons, let me tell you, like, when I'm, I'm hungry, I don't go looking for a really good, healthy food. I'm hungry for things like, you know, a big gulp, <laughs> You know, uh, at this time of the year, I hunger for things like Slurpees and potato chips because that's what I, I, that's what I really want. Now, you know, in, in, with my lips, that's not what I, what I say, of course. Oh, yes, I better get some good food. But then I go out and get the, really, the worst and terrible food because that's what we really hunger for. What are you hungry for? You know, all throughout the world... Um, I don't, I don't think in other parts of the world I actually have to explain this part, that there's rampant injustice. There's all throughout the world, everybody knows, if you're a human being, everybody knows that there should be righteousness. There should be justice. And regularly in our society, it's not like that. It's not like that. That guy over there at the end of our tribe, he's richer and therefore he... The, the judge, he's in the judge's, the judge is in his back pocket, and if he rips me off, and then I want some kind of real answer of the way I think he ripped me off, uh, th th that's not going to happen. <laughs> that's not going to happen. Regularly, all around the world, they don't even think, they don't even feel bad about, or they just go, that's just the way it is, I guess. You know that that's the way it is all around the world? You know that's the way it is all throughout history? that righteousness and justice is an incredibly elusive thing. It's, it's actually, it's a very unusual thing. That to actually live in a society based on the rule of law, that there's a law which is supposed to be above everybody, and that law tells you the standard of what is just and what is righteous, and whether you are rich or whether you're poor, whether you are black or whether you're white, whether you, whether you are connected or whether you're not, that under that rule, that standard, the police, the, the judges, the lawyers, they have to follow that standard, and the poor person, the weak person in society will get his day. That is what, that's the ideal of our system. But do you know that if, those, if you just have those laws, they're just words on a piece of paper. They're just words that's on the internet. But if people don't understand that there has to be a standard above the words on the piece of paper... Then, then all it does is it just it all devolves back down to the way the rest the, the whole the whole world in history works, which is the rich people screw over the poor and weak people, and then there is no justice. Now I'll just say a little something about this. Some of you, this is a, I, want, I don't mean to be mean about this or in any way, but I want to point out a, a really logical fallacy about secularism, relativism. Atheism, if you're an agnostic today, let me just point something out to you. You care about righteousness, don't you? I, I'm sure you do. Let's say you don't hunger and thirst for it, but all the movies you like, all the TV shows you like, you, I like the cop dramas. 
right? My wife watches. We watch cop dramas all the time. I guess this is what my wife likes because I guess she hungers and thirsts for righteousness, right? When I, when I watch a movie at the, um, at, the, you know, at the local cinema, you know what? I want the bad guy to die. <laughs> I always tell my wife, I hope this is a happy ending, and she laughs because you know what that means? She goes, I don't want the guy to get arrested. You know what? I, I want him to like, die a gruesome death. I'm like, yes, justice has happened, right? And you know what? If you're a normal human being, do you notice all those movies that end like that, all those TV shows that are like that? Those are the most popular shows because if you're a human, you know that justice and righteousness, it's weird. We regularly can see that there's in instances of injustice and unrighteousness, and yet somehow, if you're an atheist, you still think that somehow we should, and you assume that over, over there, it doesn't matter what the other person's religion is or their worldview, you assume that they get what you want. But then, when you go into the schools, and when you, we talk about what people believe in, all of a sudden, it's relativism, agnosticism. You know what that means? Then that means there's no standard above the rules in the, in the court of law. There's no real standard. It's just like those are just some rules that the powerful people made up. Why do I have to follow the powerful people's rules? So I'm just going to stick it to the man and kind of get, get, get through the system. You know what? That's exactly what happens when you live in a relativistic society. That is exactly what happens. Hmm. Now, do you think that this is the way our society is? Do you believe that our society has all kinds of rampant injustices in our society? Some of you would go like, I think there is. Well, you know, like, so I wanted to just give you an example of one that's like close to home. You know, there's all kinds of examples. Um, in other countries, if you go there, let's say you order something I've heard this is a common thing in India. You order something from America, and then it gets delivered to, you know, the UPS place or something like this. And then you have to go there to go pick up your, your merchandise. You know that if you go there to pick up your merchandise, they don't just give it to you. You have to, like, pay the guy off. That's, they, just, they just consider that a normal thing. You have to pay people off. You have to pay government officials off. It's like... They're paid to do this job, but somehow you have to pay them extra money to go do this extra thing that you're, they're supposed to be, that, you know, that's a normal thing. And in other parts of the world, there's much more even horrific things like, um, hey, you have four children, but you're poor. Where's your next meal going to come from? But your daughter there, she's kind of cute. And if we pay you a good chunk of money, would you give your daughter to us? And then the daughter gets sold off to these people and then she ends up having to do horrible things. And it's called the international sex trade. And this is a common thing. And you know, it's spilling into America. But let me just give you one that's, that's just all around us. This is like not overseas. This is around us. You know, and actually the sex trade is in this city, but you, know, you guys probably are not you know, part of it, but hopefully nobody's a part of it, okay? All right, um, but let me give you one that's just really relevant. I, I, was, I, I, I started uh, uh, listening to a new podcast this past week, and uh, when I was listening to the podcast, I was like, thank you, Jesus, this is right here, <laughs> relevant to my sermon series. Actually, I listened to it last week, and I said, okay, next week, this is good, right there. So the podcast is called Against the Rules, Famous best-selling author, his name is Michael Lewis. 
and Michael Lewis, is his, he perceives that there's all kinds of places in our society that we need what he calls a referee. But because there's no referee, you know what happens? The powerful people unjustly abuse the weaker people inside the system. So it gives you an example. So there, he introduces you to a woman named Katie Highland. Katie Highland, um, she teaches eighth grade English. She came from a poor family. Her mom was a single mom. I think she was like one of three children. So then when she went off to college, she didn't really have anybody to help her. So what is this, what is this problem we're talking about? We're problem about the, talking about he's referencing the problem of student debt in America. Now, I don't know if you know this. He gives you a quick little history lesson that in the 1960s, Bank of America invented credit cards. Did you know that credit cards have only been around since night? I didn't know that. In the 1970s, um, the banks figured out a way to get around usury laws. You guys know what usury laws are? That means that powerful people cannot charge you excessive interest. This has been around in all kinds of countries, especially in you know, the Western countries. So there's rules. You cannot pay, you know, get interest above. But the banks figured out a way to get around this and then start jacking the interest in the 1970s. And then in the 1980s, this whole consumer of finance industry took off because then they can issue debt freely to all kinds of people and then get you hooked on debt. Now, this is starting to get like real. <laughs> is this starting to get very, very real to people in the room? Now, we just celebrated some brothers who are going off to college. And so college and school debt is a huge problem in America. So apparently something... Um, there are like 44 million, pe 44 million people. <laughs> you know, we only live in a country of like 300 plus million people. 44 million people owe $1.5 trillion of debt. And, so, oh, so one of the things Michael Lewis says is you're like, oh, these people, the reason, um, well, he gives you another number. Let me see, I, I got the number. Um, out of the 44 million people, 4 million of those people, more than 4 million of those people are in default. So that's pushing 10%. And a lot more of them are on their way to default. And he goes, oh, well, a lot of you think they're just deadbeats who don't you know, keep their promises. And too bad, they should have been more disciplined, right? That would be, that's just like, oh, you know, that's not relevant to me. And then he tells you the story of this woman named Katie Highland. She comes from this relatively poor family. She worked hard. She went off to college. She's only like 30, 35, 36 years old. And she graduated in college in 2001. So she's a millennial. She went off and she majored in English. She has a bachelor's and she has a master's in secondary education. And over that period, um, people kept telling her, well, you're going to be able to pay this stuff off. And then the colleges kept saying, well, you can pay for this. You just need to take out these loans. And so all these regular series of adults. So she went through college and nobody ever told her how student debt works. Nobody ever told her, like, how much is too much? <laughs> nobody ever told her what kinds of issues can happen to her after she graduates. But it actually, all that seems reasonable, right? It actually gets worse. <laughs> so she took on $77,000 of debt. She teaches eighth grade English to kids who have difficulty in school. And then she found out, gosh, I can't handle this debt. 
So then there's a whole other group. There's a whole other business called loan servicers. So the government itself doesn't, so the, the, government may, may, uh, the government may issue this loan, but then they don't actually handle the loan. You have to go to a private company to deal with the loan. So then she goes to her loan servicer, and uh, Michael Lewis actually tells you the exact name of the company. It's called Naviant. Naviant apparently is one of the biggest loan servicers in the country, and they service something like three, um, they have a market cap of $3 billion. They handle $300 billion worth of student debt. So $1.5 trillion of debt out there, they handle one-fifth of it. They handle one-fifth of all the student debt that's out there. So these guys are, are the big boys, right? So here's what you find out. So then he tells you this interesting thing. In 2007, the government came up with this law. It's called the Public Servants Loan Forgiveness Program. So I actually know about this because there's a sister in our church who's told me about this. So I got really interested. I was like, oh, I've heard about this. Well, here's, what, here's, what, here's what's happened. So she, can, she didn't know that your loan servicing company is supposed to tell you, hey, she calls them up and says, hey, I'm having trouble paying this off. She's a school teacher. The government program in 2007 is written specifically for her. It's written for school teachers. So it's actually first started for school teachers, and then later on it was expanded for police, for people who work for the government, all these other public servants. So she, here she is, prime candidate to get this program. Do, does her loan servicing company tell her about it? No, that's their job. But they don't tell her about it. She regularly, then she found out about the program, and then she starts telling them, can you help me get on the program? That's their role. But they basically find all kinds of ways to essentially stymie her from actually getting onto the program. So uh, let me, so without getting too much more into the weeds of this, the government later on started a group called the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau. Their job, so then one of, the, one of the things they did was finding out, man, there's all these people being ripped off in the student loan industry. They audited the loan servicing companies who make a lot of money doing their business. They audited them. You know what? Okay, this, this is really quite crazy. They found out 30,000 people are eligible to benefit from the Public Servants Loan Forgiveness Program, like Katie Highland. Do you know how many people have gotten the actual loan forgiveness? Out of 30,000. This is out of 30,000 people. 96. <laughs> 96. So you guys, I, I did the, let me do the math for you. You know what that is? That's less than one-third of 1% of a program that started in 2007 and then was expanded in 2011. So this program has been around since 2007. 96 people have gotten the loan forgiveness because all of these, I mean, I, I, I want to say certain bad words, these companies have basically been screwing these people over because if they get on the program, they get off their company and then they, get, then they, then they lose money. This is what's been going on. And... People like Katie, Kate, there's this portion in the podcast where Katie Highland says she feels stressed all the time, so she grinds her teeth. She's in her mid-30s. She cannot afford teeth implants because they're, you know, they cost thousands of dollars. They're not covered under insurance. So she's in her mid-30s, and she doesn't smile because she's lost some of her teeth. 
under the unbelievable stress that she's on, even though in 2016, she called them up and said, I think I went through all the hoops. Can I get the loan forgiveness? And they're like, oh, no, you can't because, you know, you didn't sign this thing right or you didn't sign this. So now you have to start all over again. That's what they told her. Ask your friends about, about this. Let me just say, 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 say a little something about the society we live in. This kind of thing, I think, is, sad to say, not uncommon. I'm, I just, I, Michael Lewis is not even a Christian, and I'm listening to this going like, hey, this is sort of like a guy who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Good for you, Michael. Thank you. You know, it, it actually, the, the rest of the episode gets even worse. The, the episode gets worse. It's not bad enough that there's people like 29,000 plus Katie Highlands out there getting screwed over by people. He tells you the name of the CEO of Navient who makes six and a half million dollars in one year at the expense of people like Katie Highland. He tells you about that, but then he goes, oh, there's a government agency called the Consumer um, Finance Protection Bureau. And guess what? They, they, they sued these, uh, they sued these, they sued these loan servicing companies, and then something, all of a sudden, the leadership changed, the rules changed, and now they're not very good at being able to deal with these companies. Why do you think that happened? Because the powerful people came in here, they have lobbyists, and they defanged that regulatory agency, and that's happening right now. It's happening right now. This is happening right now. So you, you beautiful brothers who are off to go off to college, don't take out too much money. Because <laughs> it's not safe. All right, let's go to part two. That was probably more than you wanted to know, but it's very relevant. And I'm not just trying to scare you, but um, in a relativistic system, powerful people prey upon the weak. Righteousness is very, very elusive. But let me get to part two. Oh, so if we get enough religion, you know, it's very, very helpful that if you actually worship the right God and his word is given to you and he gives you the right standard, that does somewhat help, right? It does somewhat help, but it doesn't help enough. You know, God is a God. One of the things I want to say about this is like, um, one of the, you know, I, if we live in this time, a lot of people think God is love, God is God's love, but you know, God is also a judging God. God's a righteous God. And a righteous God does not like evil, wicked people who lie and steal and cheat and screw over the people that are, are weaker than them. And they don't like that there's this thing called hell and that God sends people there. But that's very, very explicit in the Bible because God cares about righteousness. But Generally, we're very unrighteous. Just let me just share a couple of verses from you. And this is really interesting too because it's not just a critique about how much God cares about righteousness. It's a critique about religious people, the Jews, the Israelites who actually have the right standard, the right law of righteousness. But this is what he says to them. So give me, let me give you an example. This is common in the Old Testament. So this is from Amos chapter five. Let's see if our brothers have this here. This is God's word to the prophet Amos, and this is what he's supposed to say to Israel. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. I don't like your worship. 
even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I won't listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This is what God wants. Brothers and sisters, we can sing good songs in here and we can have good theology in here, but if we will not be a people who hungers and thirsts for righteousness and justice out there, I don't think God wants to hear our songs. This is a tough word. Let me give you another one. If you think this is like, I'm just like cherry picking a particularly tough patches, there's, there's a lot of them. <laughs> but let me offer you another one. Isaiah chapter one. So I actually took the toughest, ver- I, took, I clipped off some of the, the, the harsher verses. So let's just get right into the middle of the passage. Verse 15. When you spread out your hands, again, this is God talking through Isaiah to the people. When you spread out your hands, this is like in worship. I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. We have to be people who have mercy and get angry for people like Katie Highland. And guess what? They're all throughout our city. You probably all know Katie Highland. Who's getting ripped off through consumer, you know, consumer, you know, so through student loans. Who's getting preyed upon by credit card companies. There's all kinds of things like this that's going on. It's left and right. It's a normal thing in our society. Now, I want to talk a little bit about this point. You know, you can have the right standards. And a lot of people think that's what religion is good for. You get them the right rules because we all need some good rules and good standards. And then we will try to live up to those things and we'll become better people. You know, it kind of works. Because externally, then we will kind of have better behavior. But actually, it doesn't work to the way God wants it. Because look at this. God doesn't say, I want you to be an externally behaving, cleaned up people that seem to have good rules and then you hypocritically act like you have righteousness. That's not what he says. The words of Jesus, will you be a people? Blessed are you if you hunger and you thirst for righteousness. Let justice roll down. Would you bring justice to the fatherless? Plead the widow's cause to those who are hurting in society. Now, let me say something about this. It's hard. If you live in a society where the rich prey upon the weak, the connected prey upon the unconnected. You're like, well, I'm not that connected, but gosh, I I listened to this problem that our neighbor has, and if I jump into this thing, I'm going to find out it's a hornet's nest of other kinds of problems. It's very, very inconvenient and painful. An unjust world, guess what? They don't, they're good at being unjust. And then you want to do justice. You want real righteousness to happen for your neighbors, maybe for your, your children. And then guess what? It's very, very hard. It's exhausting. And then they will attack you and then bad things will happen to you. 
And you know, it's very, very easy for us to just say, oh, let's just go to church. Oh, well, let's just try to have a, a private, privatized religion and cleaned up lives and we'll have a holy huddle in here and they'll be hurting people out there. But that's not God's will. And in fact, if he says, if he says, if this is the way you want to do it, don't, don't pray to me. <laughs> don't sing your songs to me. I don't want to hear them. That's what he says. That's tough words. You know, it's very thankless. It's very inconvenient. And it's very easy to go into hypocrisy. It's very easy to go into pride. And then sometimes there's even another problem. Like the set part two is there's other problems. So you do, I, I've seen this too. There are other people who say, I do care about justice. I'm a person that cares very much about social justice. I care about oppression. I care about people. And then you meet and hang out with some of these people. And after a while, they, if you don't care as much as they care, you know what they do? They tell you about it. <laughs> they start looking down upon you. You ever, you, ever, you ever been that way? Maybe some of you actually are this way. I've, been, I've had periods of my life when I get very worked up about a cause and then when I'm around other people, including Christians, and they don't see what I see is so unjust, and then I go like, that's because you're just corrupt and you don't care. <laughs> and so these are the problems of righteousness too. One is, it's very difficult to do. Two, it's very easy to just kind of give a little bit on the outward and then do externalism. But then here's a third problem, which is if you actually care about it, then it becomes my righteousness and you're not as righteous. I care about justice, but you don't care about justice. So that's the next problem of righteousness, which is the problem of pharisaical pride and judgmentalism, because that's what, when you have the right standard, even if you have the right standard, if you have any standard, I mean, in our culture, there's like false standards and we, we're, we're, people are being judged. You're not woke enough, <laughs> you know? It's like, these are like false standards and people are being judged for failing the, other, the false standards. But guess what? Even if you have the right standards, that's not the righteousness God seeks either. <laughs> we need a righteousness not from us, not from whether we're going to take it from God's standard and say, now I am righteous and I am just and you're not. You're not good enough because I care about it and you don't care about it. That, that's, 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 that's not the kind of righteousness God wants. <laughs> God wants a tougher kind of love yet humble. God wants a people that will be persistent and will take on sacrifice and pain even though there's opposition. God wants a righteousness and justice and mercy for our neighbors that come from the heart. That's just not externalistic. And yet, we will not judge other people if they don't quite get it as well as we get it. How do you have a righteousness like that? And if we're really, really honest, how many of us could say that is the righteousness that we have? That is the justice that we seek? That's, that isn't the kind of righteousness that we hunger for from our hearts and souls. We, we, we want something easier. <laughs> I want something easier. It's just something I can just deal with on Sunday morning because this is too hard. And I like feeling better than other people. If we're really, really honest, I do. <laughs> So you like being in the, in the correct political party, and I don't know which one you consider that. 
the right wingers love being on that side and looking down on these people. And the left wingers love being on that side and looking down on these people because they get the right righteousness, but they're all righteousness without God. They're only a righteousness of the law. So how can there be a people that have a righteousness from God? Humble and merciful and yet tough and persistent and without condemnation and superiority. In other words, a kind of righteousness like Jesus. He came to not to condemn, but he came to have mercy. He came to heal and he came to oppose those who were oppressive. And who came to, he came to like confront those who would be judgmental and condemning and who abused religion or who just abused power. He came to offer a different kind of righteousness. And to say, if you hunger for God's righteousness, blessed are you. You can be satisfied. I want to close by offering you a piece of the gospel. What does the gospel offer? At the center of the gospel, there is atonement. <laughs> that is the blessing that God offers. Because this problem of unrighteousness, or even our righteousness, which is actually unrighteousness. <laughs> Do you realize that a lot of our, you're righteous? You know, there's the people who are unrighteous because they're relativists and then they abuse other people. Okay, that's bad, okay? But then there's the people who are like, I'm righteous and I'm better than you. Their righteousness is actually unrighteousness. <laughs> How can you heal a world like that? How can there be real righteousness and justice when the so-called righteous religious people are unrighteous. And then, of course, all the relativistic people are preying upon the weak. Only if there is atonement. That's God's answer. Here's God's answer. God looked and said, okay, the so-called righteous people are unrighteous. And then, of course, there's all the lawless people which are unrighteous. He sent the son to say, he will be righteous in a way that none of you can be righteous. <laughs> you know, we're going to try to be righteous this way, and if it's going to be based upon our, our own understanding of the law and our own efforts, we're going to fail. But what he did was, there was one who would be righteous in our place, <laughs> and then whose heart would spill out a, righteous, a righteousness from God, a divine power which we cannot have apart from him. And so he did this work, which the Bible calls atoning. So for all our wickedness and for our righteousness, for our wickedness and for our righteousness, he said the, the Son of God will bring real righteousness and then all the unrighteousness this way and the unrighteousness this way could be placed upon him. And whether it's for your sins or for your righteousness, and your righteousness, like you and me, is mostly sins. He will come to be a lamb. He will come to say, your sins and your righteousness can be upon me, and when I die, it'll go away. And then my blood will wash you, and then you could be forgiven. You could be washed, and you can have a chance to get a new kind of righteousness. First, he will credit this righteousness to us, although we have no business being credited with this righteousness. And then he will say, now you can have a chance to walk in God's righteousness. 
from his heart the kind of righteousness that our neighbors, the broken and the poor and the despised are being downtrodden upon. And then all of us hypocritical kinds are like, I don't have enough energy to care about them, right? I'd rather just do religion. So atonement, Jesus came and said, I will change the whole thing. There was a standard from me and you couldn't handle it. And even the way you handle it became unrighteousness. But I will come and I will become a lamb for you. And if we will go to the lamb of God who is righteous in only the way God can be, then there could be a washing. And when we go before him, there's only one way to go as failures. As failures because we were lawless and filled with sins. And then as failures in our righteousness because we don't have enough love and not enough justice and mercy upon our neighbors and including judgmentalism into our other neighbors. And instead, that can all go upon the Lamb of God. And through the Holy Spirit, he could unleash a new kind of righteousness in our hearts. And then we can go into our city and then we can go into the injustice of our times with a new kind of toughness and a new kind of humility. And then we'll fall down and fail again, of course, but then you know what? He forgives you again. And then he'll wash you again. And we can go, and we can become the kind of neighbors in the darkness, the salt that our city needs. This is the gospel. And apart from this good news, how can there ever be justice and righteousness in a city if there cannot be a righteousness from God? Our city and our neighbors desperately need the church. Not religion, but salt. Salty salt. A people who've received forgiveness and washing and cleansing from the Lamb of God and then who will have a hunger of His righteousness being spread among our neighbors. And the revived church, who can do these things? It cannot happen because we're good enough because we certainly are not good enough. But it can begin and a saltiness can go out into our city if we will walk by faith, by repentance, by obedience, by the washing of the blood of the Lamb of God through a new kind of righteousness from God. Not from us, but from God. Revived church, let's be this kind of church. Would you like to be this kind of church? Our neighbors desperately need this kind of church. We need this kind of church. I need this kind of church. I need brothers and sisters to hunger and thirst for righteousness with me, for Christ's righteousness, for Christ's righteousness to spill out and reign in our city. Revived church, let's be this kind of church. Let's pray. For the Katie Highlands among in Sunnyvale, in Santa Clara, Cupertino, Mountain View, San Jose, we pray, Lord, for the hypocrites we often are, the religious kinds of righteousness that we say, oh, I can do that, and then we try to cover ourselves with those little pieces of religion and law. 
May we run to you, Lord Jesus, so that we could be covered by your forgiveness. We could be covered by your humility. We could be covered by your toughness, a righteousness which is eternal and forever, which can only come by grace through faith. Would you make us a people that when people say, those people over there, I don't know if I believe in Jesus, but if those people weren't active in our city, a lot of people would be in trouble. (laughs) We pray, Lord, as Revive is established, that people in Sunnyvale and Santa Clara, Mountain View, San Jose would say, it's a good thing Revive is around because we need those kind of people. I mean, I believe in Jesus, but I'm glad that they are in, that something about them is special and really bless a lot of people. And they won't know it, but they will be fulfilling verse 16, that the people around us would glorify you when they see us live for you, being salt and light. Lord, it is not in our power, but it is in yours. We turn to you. Pour out your grace upon us in Jesus' name. Amen.